If you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, I will read beginning in verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we, we are grateful for the truth that you have revealed to us, for what you have done in making Christ known, known to us, and, and what it means to be um, positionally in Him and relationally um, knowing Him. And God, we, we want to walk in the truth, God, that You have laid out, that our own experience would be true to Your Word, true to Your person, and that You would be glorified in us. And so, God, we, we pray that by the working of Your Spirit that You would, in, in keeping with Your Word, work in us, God, that we might... Um, be living lives that are true to you in every sense. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. It's great to be back home again. Thank you, Vincent, for filling in for me um, last Sunday. Patsy and I were up in British Columbia, beautiful British Columbia, I have to admit. Um, didn't rain all week long, so it's just, you know, mid-70s, maybe low-80s at the highest. Um, cooling down in the evenings, have to put on a sweater absolutely million-dollar view from, from the room that they have us stay in. And wonderful time seeing very old friends and meeting um, new friends, um, busy with, with teaching and preparing and visiting with folks, but at the same time just really feeling um, ministered to and, and, um, and rested. So it was a good week. did leave my computer up there. Something has to happen every time I travel. And so I, my computer is in Canada. That's okay. I don't know how to use it anyway. So, um. <laughs> I want to um, just briefly review a little bit as we move forward in a very, very important chapter here. And first of all, the big picture of Romans, if you keep in mind, Paul has established in the first three chapters that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
that, that apart from God, we are dead in our sin. And that the only way that a person can come into life is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. Abraham in chapter 4 being an Old Testament example of that. It's always been the same. God's never had two ways of salvation. But that we are, are justified, reckoned justified before God through our faith in God's substitutionary um, sacrifice on our behalf. And then having been reckoned, we are justified by God, that, that Paul spends all of chapter 5 talking about what that justification looks like. And then, having finished that, he wants to now move into how this Christian life is worked out. So chapters 6, 7, and 8 are about sanctification. And as we'll note when we get over to chapter 8, that, that verse that we're all so familiar with and we love so much, there, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That condemnation is certainly applicable in terms of standing before God one day as those who have put our faith in Christ. But again, that would have to do with, with our, um, our justification, our salvation. But these chapters are about our sanctification. And so Paul would seem to be saying, even when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, he's talking about in the process of the Christian life, as we grow in Christ, sometimes feel like we take two steps back for every step forward, as we struggle, and, and Paul certainly struggles, as we'll see when we get to chapter 7, that we can know that there is no condemnation, not even in the process of sanctification. And so these chapters are, are not reverting back to salvation, not looking forward to that day when we stand before God in heaven, but our present experience in the Christian life. And if you remember as well, this is a church that Paul had not visited when he wrote Romans. And so it seems that having never gone to Rome, it is very, very much on his heart to talk about how the Christian life is lived. Because so many times, I think even in Paul's day, there was already the growing tendency very early as we see today to present the gospel as though it is merely a way to ensure that we go to heaven when we die. And there is so much more to the gospel than moving our, our destiny from hell to heaven. But Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, came to indwell us through the Holy Spirit that we might now be able to live and so his saving grace is more than just getting us to heaven, but living now the Christian life in us. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 is about that activity. We looked at how at the very beginning of the chapter, and I have to make a correction. Um, this is always fun, eating humble pie. But in verse 2, I noted last week, two weeks ago, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And I made the remark that the word still or yet is not in the Greek. I was mistaken. I went back and looked at it again, and it is there. Such a little word, and I guess I was speed reading the Greek, which is all I know how to do. And, um, and I missed it, but it is there. But the point that I was making, I think, is still a valid point. And that is that Paul seems to be saying throughout Romans, remember Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And the point being, the only way to come into life is by faith. And that's something that he carries out all through Romans. Kelly read this morning from Romans chapter 8, that if we as believers walk according to the flesh, we must die. 
But if we walk according to the Spirit, we will live. The point being, I think, that Paul's making is if we shall continue in sin, then how are we going to live? There is, we can know the grace of God. Because we know God's grace. God is a gracious God. He is gracious to the unbeliever and He's gracious to the believer. And the grace of God is constantly available. In fact, Paul will argue that it actually increases where sin increases. But to know His life, that's a different matter. We cannot continue in sin and know His life. And I really think this is the major theme of chapter 6 as we'll see when we get to the end of the chapter. We also noted that of all the uses of sin in these two chapters, and there's 25 uses of sin in chapter 6 and chapter 7, only one of them has to do with the act of sin, the behavior. And that was in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? That is the only one that has, a, has reference to sin being an activity. All the other 24 uses of sin are sin as a disposition or a principle. In other words, the sin nature. And when we read through it carefully and see what the language of death is applied to, it is we who are reckoned as having been baptized into Christ's death, crucified with Him, buried with Him, and raised with Him. Never once is it that the sin is crucified, that the sin died with Christ, but we died with Christ. And then to make that point even more um, um, clear for us, Paul's going to use two illustrations. At the end of this chapter, the illustration of a master and a slave. And at the beginning of chapter 7, the illustration of a husband and a wife. And his point in both illustrations, the master-slave illustration, is the slave dies. The husband-wife illustration, the wife dies. It is not the master, sin, who dies. It is not the master, the bad husband, that dies. It is the one that is under the husband, the one that is under the master that dies. We die. So it's very important in understanding that because it helps to answer the question, does the Christian have one nature or two? Again, Not two personalities, one person, but with two natures. The sin nature and the nature of Christ, the nature of God. And I believe that Paul is saying very clearly in these passages that we have both natures. A sin nature and the nature of God himself. We know that in part because it is not the sin nature that's dying, it is the person who's dying. Another thing that helps me in thinking through this about whether the sin nature is eradicated or not um, is, again, our own experience would tell us all people have a problem with sin. And that believers, and you know, how else, and I really struggle with this, how if, if the sin nature is eradicated and that the trouble we have with sin as believers is simply because of thought patterns that we develop prior to becoming Christians then why is it that a child who receives Christ at four or five years old will continue to struggle with sin throughout his life? And why is it that a person who is in their 80s or 90s who has been walking with Jesus since they were little children 
can still say, I'm as prone to sin today as I've ever been in my life. And I know that I'm only merely a step away from the ditch. That is the common experience of all of us. And I feel like we're almost, to be, not to be disrespectful, but it's almost like I'm trying to make myself believe something contrary to experience when I tell myself that I do not have a sin nature. It's coming from somewhere. And I, in my own experience, it's coming from within. But there's another point. The believer says that we actually have three enemies as Christians. The flesh, and in that, ter- in that definition of the flesh, the sin nature, the world, and the devil. When I come to Christ, if the doctrine of the eradication of the sin nature is true, then why didn't God just go ahead and go the further step and eradicate the world and the devil? But he hasn't. So he's knocked out one of the three, but not all three. And I don't think so. Because I find that the solution to the world and the devil is the same solution that I have to my sin. And that they are constant problems, constant foes throughout my Christian experience. The world, the flesh, and the devil. None of the three have been eradicated. Now, moving on to what now are we to do? If there is a sin nature, it is our former master, but not our present master. If we have been buried with Christ, crucified with Him, risen from the dead with Him, what is the key, if there is one, to to experiencing this co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ? And very simply, Paul, Paul doesn't make this to be anything all that difficult. It may be something that has to be put into practice regularly, but it just simply comes down to this repeated um, imperative that he makes, present yourselves to God or yield yourselves to God. And so that's why I started in, in verse 11. Even so, yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves or The other word that's often used is reckon yourselves. John Stott on this said, This reckoning is not make-believe. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is not make-believe, John Stott says. It is not screwing up your faith to believe what we do not believe. We are not to pretend that our old nature has died when we know perfectly well that it has not. Instead, we are to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ thus putting an end to its career. We are to consider what, in fact, we are, namely, dead to sin and alive to God. This is the truth. It may not feel true, but God says, it is the truth. I have died to sin, and I am alive to God. He says, once we grasp this, that our old life has ended with the score settled, the debt paid, and the law satisfied, we, will want, we shall want to have nothing more to do with it. But again, begs the question, well, then how do I make that transaction? How do I act upon it? Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, 
but under grace. And so he introduces this idea of master-slave. And it's almost like Paul has in mind, if a, a, a slave is supposed to present himself to his master every day, right? It's like showing up for work. And so maybe he has a morning slave and he has an evening slave, but for whenever your shift starts, you're supposed to be on time. And you have no excuses for not being there because you're a slave. And you simply show up in order to receive your orders for that day. What am I supposed to do, master? And he says, instead of showing up for work to sin, instead of just just presenting yourself as though you are a victim and that you have to do whatever sin commands, present yourself to God. Show up before him. Here I am, Lord. Live your life through me. Here I am. And we hand ourselves over to him. And in doing that, we, we will not let sin reign, and we cannot simultaneously present ourselves to Christ and be presenting ourselves to sin. You can't do it both. It's going to be one or the other. Either I'm presenting myself over to Jesus or I'm presenting myself over to sin. And he says, present yourselves to God. And so there is an active part here. God is more than willing and more than able to live his life in me, but he is not going to force himself upon me. He wants me to yield to him, to give him the right of way. He wants me to present myself to him. He's active, he's moving, but I am called upon by God to say, here I am, God, be active in me, move in me and upon me. And then verse 15, he raises the question, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. See, we can. It's not can we sin, but shall we sin? After all, the law doesn't apply to us. Grace applies to us. And this is the danger of teaching grace. Because true, it is absolutely true. You can sin like you're a professional. And it is not going to affect your standing, your position before God. Because in Christ, our sin has been paid for. We died with Christ. Saying, and remember, that when a person has been sentenced to capital punishment for a capital crime, and sin is a capital crime, that once he dies, then the sin is paid for, and he is justified. We died with Christ. And so, having died, we can be sinning, and we're still justified, because we have been justified in Christ. He paid for all of our sin, even the sin we commit as believers. And so God's grace continues. By the, we stand in this grace. Remember 5.1. We stand in this grace, or verse 2 maybe. But it's, it's not something that's going to be removed from us. It's going to be there no matter what. Now the devil's going to come and, and falsely accuse me and say, how can you be a Christian? How can you be a Christian, be living in sin? And God says, you became a Christian by the grace of God. And you stay a Christian by the grace of God. And I caused you to be born again. You can't get unborn. Nothing you can do can unborn, unbirth you. Unborn you, unbirth you. And he uses actually two images. Not only does he use a birth image, 
We are born by the Spirit of God, but it uses an adoption image. And that's important because one who had been adopted, according to Roman law, could never be unadopted, could never be disavowed. And so by both of these things, we know that we are permanently in Christ, permanently saved once we put our faith in Him. But, again, the point is, what benefit comes to you in continuing in sin? And I'd like to say none. But really, there is something that comes, and Paul says, death. It's not a plus, and it's not neutral. It's a negative. The Christian, though he will continue to be saved, he will not continue in the experience of life. He will experience death. It's not neutral. We can't just cruise through life under the grace of God and say, I can do whatever I want, and I'm still experiencing God's grace. Yeah, you're experiencing God's grace, but again, are you experiencing His life? Are you experiencing His life? So let's just work through this. It's very important. We, we could almost just skip his illustration about the master and slave and go straight over to verse 21 and 23 because really verse 15, the question of verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. That question is really finally answered in verses 21 to 23. But first his illustration. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now he's using several different comparisons and contrast here. He says there are two masters... There's either the master of sin or the master of Christ. And he says there, there are two consequences, either death or life. And, and, and he says there are two obediences. You are either obedient to Christ or you are obedient to death. And there, there are two freedoms. Either I am free from righteousness or I am free from death. And all these things, we can step into one or the other. He's talking about our experience, not talking about positional truths here, but my experience. I can step from life to death, freedom from righteousness or freedom from sin and death. I can step from obedience to Christ or obedience to sin. All of these things are options for me as a believer on a moment to moment basis, depending upon who I am presenting myself to. Now, the analogy is not perfect. That's why Paul says in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms. I'm just using a simple analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. Parenthesis. You see here, flesh in this verse is not a reference to sin nature. Sometimes, again, you'll hear people say, well, flesh is always means sin nature in the Bible. No, it doesn't. And so here, the weakness of your flesh, he's simply meaning the weakness of your understanding, the weakness of your humanity. You can go through, there's many, many references to flesh in the Bible. I just looked up a few of them just here in Romans. The next chapter, Paul's going to say, I am flesh. And then four verses later in Romans 7, 18, he says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so he's going to identify himself as a Christian with flesh. So obviously he's not meaning sin nature. 
When Paul talks about contributing to those who have, who have, you've reaped from spiritually, he says if you have profited spiritually, then you should pay back materially, is how it's translated in the, in the New American Standard, but the actual word is with, with the flesh. If you have received spiritual things, then pay back fleshly things. And so clearly he's not speaking about sin nature. 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Just meaning flesh in distinction from spirit. And we know in John 1.12 that a person is not born again by the will of the flesh. He's not talking about sin nature. But the strength of our humanity can never cause a person to be saved. Jesus, the word was made flesh. Again, the word wasn't made of sin nature. The word was made flesh, meaning humanity. And so many, many times in Scripture, the word flesh is simply a reference to our humanity. And so this is why, again, when Paul says, you have been purchased with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, the word there really is flesh. Is that in your humanity, glorify God. I will pour out all my spirit, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh, (laughs) upon all sin nature. No, but upon all humanity. And, and so that's all Paul's saying here. I'm speaking in, the, in human terms because of the weakness of your humanity. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what he means again, if I am living... Particularly as an unbeliever, he's going back to the past tense as an unbeliever. My experience as an unbeliever, when I was simply just living in my humanity, and the sin nature was allowed to have its course, and I'm responding just to the promptings of my flesh, using that as sin nature, then the only outcome that I can receive is death. Never sanctification. We all know that's true. We all know that in our experience. Think back before you were a believer. That, or it, and truly, even as a Christian, it's going to be Paul's point. Because of what was true of you as an unbeliever when you walked according to the flesh is going to be true of you as a Christian when you walk according to the flesh. The flesh can only produce death for the unbeliever as well as for the Christian. We all know that to be true. And he says, so in that respect, you were free in regard to righteousness. No righteousness was being accomplished. But for the believer, when you present yourself to Christ, you become free in respect to sin. Now, he's not saying that you will come to a state of perfection where you will never sin again. That's not going to happen. In fact, John will say in 1 John, if anyone says that he was without sin, just ask his wife. (laughs) He's a liar. He's a liar. I remember Charles Price, when he was speaking at his hill, he said that he was going through this passage and he actually had a man come up to him and say, you know, I've gone X number of years without sinning. You know, like seven or eight years or something. And Charles was going, really? He goes, yep. And he goes, is your wife here? The guy goes, why are you asking that? He goes, because I want to ask her. I want to see what she thinks. He goes, oh, well, she doesn't agree with me. (laughs) Not surprised. If anyone says that he was without sin, he's a liar. Just ask his wife. So we're not going to reach a state of perfection, but his point is that Christ cannot be living his life through us. 
and for us to simultaneously be sinning. If he is living his life through me in that moment, then it's all Jesus. It's not flesh. It's not sin. And so I am free in respect to sin. This is why when Jesus spoke of his own life and his own example, living as a human being, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he did nothing of his own initiative. He yielded himself to his Father. He permitted his Father to live in him. And what you saw was the Father. And so even his enemies who spent all those years trying to find some one word, a single word that was false, could find no falsehood, no lie in him. His enemies said so. And why? It wasn't just that he was choosing every day to tell the truth. But he was presenting himself to his father constantly. And so as his father spoke through him, his father speaks only the truth. And as I present myself to Jesus, see, if I go through every day saying, I'm not going to tell a lie, I'm always going to speak the truth, then, you know, man, I just can't do that. Because, I, because I'm living again, unconsciously, but I'm living from my own strength, my own willpower, and I have stepped into the realm of the flesh. It's not going to succeed. I have to hand myself over to the one who is the truth and say, Jesus, here's my mouth. Here's my tongue. You have got to have it. Because, as James says, I can't control it. It is a restless evil, full of evil, full of deadly poison, a flame that sets a whole forest of flame, a, fo- a fo- whole forest of fire. I can't control it. So I present it to you. And so then I can know, no matter what my good intentions are, and they can be very noble, trying to save a multitude, if a lie comes from my mouth. It's not Jesus speaking, because Jesus is the truth. And so this really changes morality, you see. It doesn't doesn't change the the definition, but it changes where, where I live from. Because if morality is dependent upon my motivation, man, I I had good motives when I did that. Or if morality is dependent upon just, just what I hope the outcome is, then the morality is coming from me. I'm the source of the morality. But if the but if I recognize then all that's transient, it's gonna fail. And I want something that's more substantive than my willpower, and that is more consistent than what I can attain to then I have to present myself over to another. And I was just reading this, coming back on the flight yesterday, this book that I picked up a number of months ago and hadn't gotten back to, so I was reading some more in it. And the guy just, he didn't, wasn't even talking about Romans 6, but it just fits so perfectly. He, was talk, he just says, much of the morality today, in the church and out of church, is just this point. That people are saying, well, you know, I'm, I, if, to me, this is the truth. To me, this is what God would have me to do. Well, that is a, a, a human, a, a morality that is, that is originating in my own humanity. And I can say God's Spirit's moving me this way, but it's me going out and doing what I think is the right thing based upon what is in me. And God says, yeah, I put my Spirit within you, and yeah, I will enliven your conscience, but I haven't given you a conscience and a humanity so that you could just go out and try and do what you think is is right, but that you would see that you can't do it. 
and that you would hand yourself over to me. And see, then the standard is not lessened to how often I can tell the truth or how pure my motives may be. The standard remains God, who is truth. And every word that he will speak will always be truth. And that will go across the board with what is true of God. So it's no longer a question of, is it God's will for me to tell the truth, or is it God's will for me to lie? And then even enter in the question. Bad question. It is, God wants to speak through me. And when he speaks, it is the truth. So I don't even have to pray about whether it's ever God's will to tell a lie. It will never be God's will because he cannot will what is contrary to his own nature. And so God, man, this is tough, God. If I tell the truth, I could lose my job. If I tell the truth, all kinds of bad things could happen. God says, yep. But I want to tell you, there is nothing but death that comes from sin. And whatever is contrary to me is sin. And lies are contrary to God. You think bad things come from telling the truth? We all know much worse things come from telling lies. What is the outcome of these things? Look at verse 23, 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from these things of which you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. No matter what your motivation is. It's death every time. But now, having been freed from sin positionally and enslaved to God, He is our master. You derive, if you present yourself to Him, obviously is the assumption, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. You could have said salvation. He's not talking about salvation here, but in the present. My present experience, sanctification. My present experience of sanctification, eternal life. And then as I noted two weeks ago, verse 23, certainly this is true for eternity, but this is not how he's applying it. Verse 23 is about now. Now, the wages of sin is death. Now, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can live in death. Or I can live in life. It depends upon who I present myself to for obedience. I can present myself to sin, and it can just be with, I don't have any other option. I'm just so defeated. I don't so see anything else. Just sin's just bigger. Or I can present myself to Jesus. I don't have to defeat sin. I can't defeat sin. He doesn't tell me to defeat sin. He tells me to present myself to Jesus. He doesn't give me ten steps for conquering anything. He gives me one step. Present myself to Jesus. And he lives in me to lead me into life. And I know full well, God uses people. God uses prayer. God uses his word. Memorization, excellent thing to do. Meditating on God's word, great thing to do. God uses these things. But he doesn't say, if I memorize a certain amount of scripture every day, if I meditate a certain amount of time every day, if I bring other people in and have prayer meetings about my sin, if I stay in a small accountability group 
then I will enter into life. Never says those things. Jesus is life. And he says, come to Jesus and present yourself to him. And in the moment that we do, as we are presenting ourselves to Jesus, Jesus, and man, and I tell you, man, you feel desperate. I do many times. Said Jesus, I'm telling you, Jesus, I want to make this very clear because I understand there is nothing I can do. You have got to live in me. You have got to do this. And I think Jesus just says, you know, it's just amazing. You have to be so desperate. (laughs) Because this is the created design. This was how God made Adam to live. This is how Jesus lived. And this is how all of us are designed to live. That God would be the source of our life. And we live as we hand ourselves over to him. Lord Jesus, you have got to live in me. That master, and again, it it is a slavery, and he is the master, but the outcome, sanctification, and eternal life. We want sanctification. We want eternal life. Then I have to present myself to him for obedience. Here I am, Jesus. I present myself to him for obedience. And if I think I cannot present myself to obedience and not at the same time present myself to sin, I am mistaken. Because there's one or the other. Either I'm presenting myself to Jesus or I'm presenting myself to sin. It is one or the other. There is no neutral ground. And either I'm being obedient to sin or I'm being obedient to Christ. Either death is what I'm walking in or life is what I'm walking in. It is one or the other. And Paul's reasonable thing is just, think back, folks. What benefit did you ever derive when you were living according to the flesh, when you were presenting yourself to sin? Nothing. So obedience to Jesus may sound like a bad thing, but he's saying, remember, it's life or it's death. And he doesn't soften it. Lord Jesus, Here I am. Take me. Work in me. Have my mouth. Have my hands. Have my eyes. Have my thoughts. Take over, Jesus. Because I see, I am but death apart from you. And you've saved me for life. Let me close us in prayer.